touch with her, so I'm going to leave that with him. Open your Bibles tonight to 1 Samuel chapter number 30. 1 Samuel chapter number 30. Being a, a pastor is a mixture of pleasure and pain. Uh, you know, I'd like to tell you it's all pleasure, you know, that never any pain involved, but, uh, uh, but that wouldn't be true. There's pleasure, there's pain, there's delight, there's difficulty, and, and it's my job to do my duty regardless of the circumstances. Just because it's difficult doesn't excuse me from my responsibility. One of the most painful things about being a pastor is seeing people fail and fall. It just, you parents know what I'm talking about, don't you? When you have a wayward child and, uh, and you, you've tried your very best to give them direction and to be an example and so forth, and yet they go the way of the world and it rips your heart out. And, and being a pastor is a lot like that. Uh, you, you realize that everybody, including yourself, we're all imperfect, and so you you actually expect it. You know, you know it's going to happen to some extent, but it still hurts. And the only thing worse than seeing someone fall is watching someone never get up. To see them never recover from their fall. And that happens far too many times. I, I've seen some wonderful recoveries, and that's thrilling. But it's truly sad when you see people fall and they never recover. Well, I... I certainly hope that never happens to anyone here, but I want to do more than just hope that it doesn't happen. I, I want to show you the road to recovery, and if you're not in a place that you need recovery, uh, this will be a means of prevention for you. It's something that somewhere down the road later on might be the very thing to get you back on track, and that's the title of the message tonight. The road to recovery. Now, normally whenever you're preaching a sermon, you the illustration is like putting a little porch on a big house. But tonight, I've got to put a big porch on, on I started to say a little house, but it might be a big porch and a big house. I, I, I'm not too sure where I'm going with that. But, but I'm simply trying to say that I, I need to set the stage for our thoughts tonight about the road to recovery, and I don't have time to read all of the verses because we'd need to go all the way back to chapter number 27. But after a lot of years of observation, I can tell you that I've come to believe that sometimes we can learn more from from failures than we do from successes. And some of the best lessons come from the worst failures, and I want to show you an example of that tonight. It's a story out of the life of David. I preached uh, about David here just a few weeks ago. And, you know, if I said, well, let's talk about David's failure, most people automatically would associate that with his sin with Bathsheba, right? I mean, that's what most people think of. But there was something that happened, another failure that took place 20 years earlier. And it's recorded in chapter number 27 of 1 Samuel. And the persistent pressure 
being hated, being hunted by Saul and all of the other attendant problems in caring for his family, caring for his men and their, and their families, all, all of that had worn David down. He was to a frazzle. He was exhausted, emotionally drained, physically exhausted, spiritually he was stale. And um, he had repeated, su- repeatedly suffered abuse and neglect. And yet through all of that, he remained faithful. It's really amazing. But then finally, he broke. And in a state of depression, David, coming to the conclusion that it's never going to get any better, fled to live among the Philistines, if you can believe that. Of all places to go, he goes to the Philistines and and he appeared to have adopted their cause. I, I can remember the very first church that I pastored. And there was something that happened, and it was at a stage in my life that I was, that I was still learning some things about the doctrine of the church. And uh, I'll try to make a long story short, but I was just on the verge of of going to what is known there in Springfield as a Bible church, a non-denominational Bible church, because I was so fed up with so-called Baptists in our area that I wanted nothing to do with them. Now, after a while, I began to realize not all of them were alike, and, uh, you know, you, 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 you don't want to just bail out because of the failure of some. But I'm just trying to tell you that's how easy it is in a moment when you're really discouraged to make a wrong decision. And that's what David does here. He goes to the Philistines. He becomes a deserter. He's a turncoat. He's a traitor. Whatever you want to call him, those are all ugly words because, you know, we usually think about Absalom. We usually think about Judas. We usually think about Benedict Arnold and people like that. And uh, at least for a while in his life, David would have enlisted among those traitors. And you know, that ought, to, that ought to humble each and every one of us because if it could happen to somebody like David, it could happen to us. Now remember, this is totally out of character for David. Here is a man after God's own heart. Here is a man that loves the Lord dearly. There's not any question about that. And yet, in a moment of deep depression, prolonged depression, which is extremely dangerous, uh, David made a horrible decision to associate with the Philistines. When I say associate, I mean he literally went to live among them. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves doing things that we never thought possible. You better be careful about saying, well, I'll never do that. You know, uh, because you don't know what you might do given a certain set of circumstances. And uh, you might do things that you can't undo. You might do things that will hurt other people. You might uh, suffer wounds that will never heal. And so I want you to, before we get to the actual message, consider some of the results of David's, of David's sin. In chapter 29, the first seven verses, we see that David was deserted. I'm not going to read all of this, 
But here in these seven verses, remember, David has deserted his own people. But there he's deserted by the Philistines because they felt we can't trust this guy. They made the statement, in fact, you know, what are these Jews doing here uh, uh, among us? You know, uh, is it, they made the comment, said, isn't this David, the servant of Saul? And, and it was. I mean, they are shocked that he is there. Uh, let, me, let me tell you something. If, and so many times married couples get married and they, some way or another, they get it in their mind that as a result of, a, of two broken relationships, both of them being unfaithful, and they create a new relationship, and then they wonder why they have trust issues with each other. It's kind of like the old saying, you know, if, if he'll cheat on, on one, he'll cheat on the other. You see, we can do things that will put us in a position where nobody's going to trust us. And this is where David's at. They're saying, good night, if he'll betray his own people, we can't trust him. So David is deserted by, by the enemy. Not only that, but David is disillusioned because he thought in his mind... He thought, I will win the admiration of the people. And remember, he is not appreciated where he's at. Saul hates him. He's the best friend that Saul ever had. And yet, Saul hated him because, why? Well, because all of the women, they're writing songs about David and dancing in the street and singing the praises of David. And Saul gets jealous and he wants to kill him. And so he's not appreciated there. So he goes to the Philistines He's disillusioned because he thinks, I can win their admiration, I can win their confidence, but he's wrong. Not only that, but he was deprived. Now we come to chapter 30 in the first five verses, and these verses tell us that his family was taken captive. You know, had he, listen, had he not been among the Philistines, that would have never happened. And as a result of being there, his very own family is now taken into captivity. Let me tell you, whenever we sin against God, we don't just hurt ourselves. We always end up hurting somebody else. And we need to stop and to think about how our sin is going to affect our family. And so now David is deprived of his family. And not only that, we see that he was distrusted. Verse number 6. Let me read that. Our text is found here. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all of the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God." His faithful followers had lost confidence in his ability to lead. Listen, these are men that would have died for him. These that are men that had forsaken all to follow him, and now they've lost confidence in him. He no longer can be trusted in their mind, and they're conniving about stoning him to death. So those that have fought for him are now fighting against him. And here in verse 6, we see David's distress. He's banished by the enemy. He is blamed by his own people. He's burdened within. His reputation has been ruined. He's hurt. He's humiliated. He's confused. 
The question is what to do next. And so let's look at David's road to recovery. In verse 5, we see the first step in this recovery is the fact that he experienced a great loss. Notice verse 5, and David's two wives, well, he shouldn't have had two, but he did, you know. And, and David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam and the Jezreelitess, and, and, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And so here we find his own family, as I mentioned, being taken into captivity and, you know, so many people try to justify today what somebody did wrong, you know, way back then. They say, well, you know, back in the Old Testament, they had more than one wife. But listen, that was never God's plan. And two wrongs don't make a right. Just because somebody did wrong back then doesn't mean that you ought to do wrong today. But David had incurred a responsibility toward these women, nevertheless, the responsibility to at least care for them. And so here he is in a situation now where his family is into, into captivity. And I, I said this is the step to recovery. What, you know, we look at this and we think about it being a result of, of the sin, and it is. It's a result of his sin, a result of his fall, but it's not only a result, it's also a remedy because David had to suffer this great loss before he ever returned to his sanity. I think that is true of a lot of people because sometimes it takes a great loss for people to start getting right with God. His loss become a turning point in his life. And a lot of times before things can get better, they've got to get worse. We think about our nation and the condition that we're in. You know, and, and, and a lot of folks are talking about, well, you know, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not even going to vote. And, I, and listen, I'm not going to get off on all of that and what have you. But, but, you know, sometimes you just get to the point, it's like you just throw your hands up in despair and say, you know, hey, what, whatever we get, we deserve, that's for sure. And God knows what he's doing and because listen, you better get ready for this because the person you want to want to win might not win and you're going to have to live with this. But I'm telling you ahead of time, sometimes before we can get better, it has to get a lot worse and it will get a lot worse. But sometimes that's the only route in order for things to ever get better. Something has to happen to cause us to see our need of God. And the same thing's true in our life. Sometimes I've known of several instances over the years where there was a family that was out of the will of God and it took the death of a child to awaken them to the fact that you need to get things right with God. So whenever, whenever we find ourselves in a situation, and, and as I've said so many times, the most miserable people on earth are not the folks down there in a the bar room. They don't have enough sense to be miserable like, you know, like they should. The most miserable people are those who are God's children. They're out of God's will. Christians that are living contrary to the will of God. And the Holy Spirit is not going to allow them to be comfortable in their sin. God loves you too much to let you sin successfully. He's not going to do it. And sometimes whenever we're going through those tough 
patches in life, those rough spots in life, we need to stop and think, is God trying to tell me something? Is God trying to show me something? And, and so many times we just attribute our hardships to, oh, well, that happens to everybody. Well, it might happen to everybody. And I'm not saying that every sickness, for example, is due to sin. It's certainly not. Some of the best people have the worst problems. Your sickness might not have anything to do with any sin in your life. It might be for another reason. There are several other good reasons that, uh, that, that God could allow that to happen. But we're foolish if we just rule out the possibility. Like, you know, oh, oh well, you know, uh, my whole life has just, you know, fallen into pieces around me. And it surely couldn't be because I've got any sin in my life. You know, that ought to be a good time for us to stop and uh, listen to the Spirit of God and read the Word of God and let God show us what might be wrong in our life. And so all of a sudden, whenever, when that happens, if that's what it takes for us to turn back to God, even our trials and our afflictions become our friends because they draw us back to the Lord. And this is where it all starts to change for David. Secondly, notice here in verse number 6, it says that he encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, there are times when all of us need encouragement. There's nobody here that's exempt, nobody here that is so strong, so super spiritual that you don't need encouragement. We all do. And there are times in your life where it would be wonderful if someone just come to your side, put their arm around you, and they said, you know, I, I want to, I, I just want to encourage you. But they don't. And now there's sometimes that people want to do something to help you that they can't do. And other times there are people that should help you that don't care to help you. Whatever the case might be, listen, if you're just going to sit around and just wait for somebody to come encourage you, you might be waiting for a long time. And we have to learn to encourage ourselves. That's what David did. He encouraged himself. There's nobody else there to do it. The key to that, notice, is that David encouraged himself in the Lord. You stop and think about the Apostle Paul there in Philippians in chapter number 4 where he tells us that we're to, basically he's telling us not to worry about anything. Take no thought, don't, don't worry about anything. Well, that listen, that, that seems almost offensive to us, right? Because here you've got all of these problems and naturally you're worried about it. And yet you read a verse like that says don't take any thought for anything, don't worry about it, you know. And we, we, we just wonder, you know, how, how in the world can, can that be? Uh, it just doesn't seem right that God would insist that we not worry about those problems in our life. And yet he goes on and he tells us that we are to think on these things. In other words, we are to redirect our thoughts. And he gives a list of things. Whatsoever things are lovely and pure and honest and of a good report and so forth. And mentions several things there. And in every instance, what he mentions is something that relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have just summed it all up and said, 
that if you want to recover from your fall or if you want to keep from falling, if you want to be encouraged, you must be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. You, you have to consider Him. You have to get your eyes on Him. You see, we get discouraged because we get to looking at others and we get to looking at our, at our problems instead of the problem solver. And we lose sight of the fact that, uh, that God is able to encourage us and to, and to help us. David, without a doubt, must have thought back to the covenant that God had made with him. What had God said? God said, I'm going to bring you to the throne. We all remember that, right? Right? I hope you do. Samuel goes in, you know, he's to anoint a new king, and he looks at all Jesse's boys, and oh, none of them will do. Well, I just got one little scrawny kid left, and he ain't going to amount to anything. Bring him in, and here comes little old David in, and he says, that's the one. Yeah, that you see, Saul. Looking at Saul, he had every reason to succeed. He's taller than anybody else. He's a man with all of the qualities of a great leader. I mean, he is the kind of man that men would have chosen to be the king. But then, poor little old David. I mean, there was no reason for him to be a success at all. And it's like God saying, "That's the kind of guy I want." Whenever I make him a king, why no, nobody can say that it is of his own doing uh, or something that man has created, but rather it's my work. You, you see, God had made David a promise like that. You think about David when he's hiding in the cave in fear of his life. Saul is trying to kill him. Here, here's old David so many times, and, and the enemy is after him. And David must have thought about the fact, you know, that, that hey, God made a promise and God cannot fail. You see, he's focused on the promise of God instead of the problems in his life. That's why this morning as I was talking about the fact that God is able, it's absolutely crucial that you and I keep our focus on the promises of God, those exceeding great and precious promises that assure us that God is able. Uh, you know, David could have blamed others. David could have said, you know, listen, I've made a mess out of my life. I, I'll never be able to be restored to fellowship with the Lord. God will never be able to use me again. I've just made such a mess out of it. Or he could have got bitter and he could have said, you know, it's not my fault. It's Saul's fault. If he had not become jealous, if he hadn't tried to kill me, if he hadn't run me out of town, if he hadn't done that, or he could have blamed his men, you know, how my men have turned on me. He could have, he could have blamed others. That's what most people usually do. They blame others when they're discouraged. But here we see that David understands that he is the only one that can change his life by direct action. And the same thing's true of all of us. Nobody else can change you. You are the only one with God's help that can change your life. He encouraged himself in the Lord. And when we think about that, we've always got something to be thankful for. As I said this morning, if God never did anything but save you, you'd never have any reason to complain. If he saves you today and you starve tomorrow, how can you complain about that? But you know we would. 
Right? I mean, you get saved today, and then the very next day, you don't have a penny to your name. There's no food in the cupboard. I have anything to eat. Somebody throws rocks at your car. Everybody, you know, they're cursing you and mistreating you and abusing you. And what do we do? Well, it sure didn't do me any good to become a Christian. Everything's going wrong. We we just can't seemingly can't get it in our mind what a great gracious thing God has done when he saved us and and if we can get a hold of that and realize that those who deserve nothing shouldn't complain about anything it would help us in our recovery when we fall David encouraged himself now notice verse number eight the third the third step in his road to recovery is the fact that he inquired of the Lord. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, uh, and without fail recover all. The strange thing about this, when you go back to chapter 27, where where this terrible tragedy started, and I've done so. You go back there and there's no mention of prayer whatsoever. Doesn't talk about David praying. And, and that's where we find that David got himself in trouble. But now David is in trouble and needing to get out. And what does he do? He prays. Let me tell you, recovery always requires prayer. Always. You're never going to get out of your problems, never get out of trouble Never recover from whatever it is that's got you down. You never will without prayer because it is an admission that we need God's help. It is us admitting, I cannot do this on my own. I need God's help. Now, I know a lot of times we make a resolution, don't we? We resolve in our heart. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I made that foolish mistake one time. I'll never do it again. I hereby now resolve in my heart that I'm going to do thus and thus. But we never recover until we request help from God because the Christian life is not lived in our own strength. It requires a miracle every day for you and I to live victoriously. We can't do it ourselves. I have a sermon entitled, it's about the Holy Spirit, it's entitled, The Can-Do God. And I'm glad we serve a can-do God, one that's able to do exceeding abundant above all that we could ask or think. He inquired of the Lord, why is it, why is it that even when we have problems, even when we have needs so many times, we will try every trick in the book except fall on our face and pray earnestly for God to meet our needs. David inquired of the Lord. Now notice, beginning in verse 9, and I wish I had time to read all of this and I don't, but, but here we, there's something really important and this usually gets totally left out of any preaching about this story, but it's important. From verse 9 on down through verse number 20, we find that David engaged in an effort to regain what he lost. 
Now remember, he has gone there to live with the Philistines, with the enemies, and now he's suffered a great loss. He has come to his senses. He's encouraged himself in the Lord. Now he's back with his people and he's praying and he's asking God, what should I do? And God gives him instructions here. Let me tell you, as important as, important as prayer is, it never rules out the need for action. You know, I mean, if you've got a busted water pipe, you can fall on your face before God and you can, you know, you can pray, oh, dear God, I just pray that you'll repair that busted water pipe. And, you know, chances are really, really good that it would be better for you to pick up the phone and call the plumber. You know, really. Amen? Amen. And so many times we think, well, you know, all I've got to do is pray about it. Well, Maybe yes, maybe no. We, we ought to pray. And then as the old timers used to say, we need to put feet to our prayers and do what we can to answer the prayer. If we're not going to do what we can to answer the prayer, why in the world is God obligated to do for us what we could do for ourselves? And we never really solve the problem until we, listen to this, till we become useful again. Now, as you read on in these verses, you'll notice that David leads his troops out against the Amalekites, and he recovers all that had been taken. Uh, remember, David wasn't the only one that suffered loss, by the way, but others had had, had also. So now he goes out, and, and notice he inquired and asked the Lord, should I go after these people? I mean, they've taken his family. Should I go after them? Good idea. We need to stop and think about what we're doing before we do it. And that's exactly what he's doing. So now he's going out and he's trying to regain what was lost. He's become useful. Remember, we're talking about the road to recovery. We're talking about getting back on our feet after we have fallen. And we're not back on our feet if we're not useful. And one of the ways, if you read beginning in verse 21, the last thing is that David, remember, he encouraged himself, but notice what this results in. David encouraged others. Previously, his attention had been turned inward, but now it's it's outward. He's thinking about other people. And now he becomes a contender for their rights, a supplier of their needs. Verse 21, And David came to the 200 men which were so faint. They could not follow David. I mean, listen, these men, they, they said, we're, we're worn smack dab out. We can't go on. We can't go another step. And it says, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Mesor, and they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them and then answered all of the wicked men of Belial, those that went with David, that went with David and said, because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered Save to every man his wife and his children that they may lead them away and depart. Did you get that picture? They've gone out and recovered these goods, but now these, these guys are saying to David, now remember, we're talking about David's faithful followers and these guys are exhausted. They can't go on. And these guys suggest, look, 
They didn't go out with us to battle. The only thing we're going to give them is their kids and their wives and, and, and so they can depart. You notice they emphasize that so they can go ahead and get out of here. They might as well leave. We're not going to give them the spoils of war. We're not going to reward them, take care of them in any way whatsoever. And then David said, verse 23, Ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter, but as his part, but as is, but as his part is, that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be, that tarrieth by the stuff, they shall part alike. In other words, we're going to divide it all up evenly. This is a really an amazing transformation when you think about it. Here is David thinking about nobody but himself. He deserts his own people. He goes to live with the enemy, but he suffers a great loss. Finally, he comes to his senses. He comes back to God. He goes out on a mission against the enemy, defeats the enemy, and now he has all of the spoils of war. And what does he do? He divides it up among them. The, the deserter become a defender of the weak. Their welfare became his work. You know, if, if we do what David did, we too can recover from our fall. But make no mistake about it, if you're not serving others, you haven't recovered. Hang with me now. There's so many times that we fail God in so many ways. We maybe come to church, we hear a, a, a message from God's Word, the Holy Spirit convicts us. We get out of our seat and we walk down the aisle. Maybe we get on our knees and we pray, Oh, dear God, I failed you so miserably. I'm so sorry that I failed you. Please forgive me of my sin. I don't want to get hurt anymore. That's what we're thinking. I don't want to get hurt anymore. I don't want to be, you know, short on paying my bills anymore. I want your blessings again. Da, 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 da. We get up off our feet and we leave and as though everything is right, but we never, we never resume our faithful ministry to the Lord. If we have not become useful again, then we have not fully recovered, and we need to remember that. Because a lot of times people say, well, you know, I'm back in fellowship with the Lord, really. You're not in fellowship with the Lord if you're not doing something to serve the Lord. Now, let me tag something on here that I think is really very important that relates to this. All of a sudden, David's restoration becomes a means whereby that David is now not only willing, but in a position that he can minister to other people. And and I've said so many times to people, you know, they've, They've made a miserable mess out of their life in some way or they've experienced some very painful thing in their life. And I've often said, you know, your mistakes and or your miseries might be the means of your ministry. I want you to think that through. Your mistakes or your miseries, these experiences that you go through, they might very well become the means of, of your ministry. And, and I say that because in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1, 
And let me just read that because Paul is talking about the manner in which God comforts us, right? And we all need that. God comforts us. He puts courage in us. He helps us to recover from our downfall. And and notice in verse 3, he says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Boy, that's good preaching stuff right there, isn't it? The God of all comfort. Think about that for a little while. But notice, he says, Who comforteth us in all our tribulation. Wow, isn't that wonderful? That he's there when we need him. He restores us when we fall. He comforts us in our time of need. But notice, he's not through. He comforteth us in all of our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. And he goes on. You ought to read the rest of it. But you you get the picture here. You see, your testimony can become a powerful tool for you to help other people. You know, if you're going, listen, if you're going through something, in in most cases, the people that help you the most are other people that have gone through what you're going through, right? And the wonderful thing is, after you've gone through that, after you've learned from that, after you have grown as a result of that experience, Even if you failed miserably, I mean, you fell flat on your Christian face. You made a fool out of yourself. You hurt yourself. You hurt other people. You would never want to do that again. But even out of that bad, God can make something good. He can make you an able minister of the Word in some way by you using your experience as a ministry to help somebody else that's going through a terrible need in their life. David encouraged himself in the Lord. Let me tell you, had he not done so, think about the position all of these other people would have been in. There would have been no comforter. There would have been no defender of the weak. There would have been no one going out on their behalf and supplying their needs. And we need to stop and to think about where others might be if we are not restored to a place of usefulness in our Christian life. Believe it, God has a ministry for you. He really does. I mean, He uses us all in different ways, but God wants to use you to be a blessing and help to somebody else. Now, I promise you, there are going to be multiple times in your life where you're going to be faced with this very thing. Maybe not to the extent that David was, but times where you will cease to be useful in the work of the Lord unless you what? Encourage yourself in the Lord. That's kind of like an obligation, isn't it? Nobody else there that's either able or willing it becomes our responsibility to encourage ourselves, and, and the great thing about it is when we when we think about that little phrase in the Lord, there's always the possibility of it happening. I, I mean, we're talking about in the Lord with Him. I'm telling you, it's possible regardless of what's going on in our life. He is the one that 
enables us to do what we could never do on our own. Well, I just hope tonight that either at this time in your life or somewhere on down the road, whenever you are in desperate need of recovery or prevention, that that you'll just remember this road to recovery that David was on and that you'll be mindful to do what he did, that you can be restored to a place of usefulness in your Christian life. Let's stand together. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word, how we thank you for the inspiration that it gives to our heart that we might be doers of the word and not not hearers only. And how thankful we are for those that have down through the years that have gone through tough times and never thrown in the towel, those that have suffered abuse and yet they've never quit, those that have repeatedly encouraged themselves in the Lord and they've, they've maintained their usefulness. And in doing so, they've been a blessing to so many and we're so grateful for them having done so. And I just pray tonight that you might help each and every one of us. There might be someone here tonight that's far astray out on the mountains of sin somewhere and they need to get on this road to recovery. And Lord, I just pray that, it, that they don't have to suffer some horrible loss in their life before they are awakened to their need. But I pray they might come to their senses and fall on their knees and just seek your help. And Lord, that they might be willing for your sake to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, because it's their reasonable service. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. While we stand and as we sing together tonight,